It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode nine of 20. My understanding is that on the 78th floor, there were a dozen to 15 or 16 survivors, most of whom were badly burned. In addition to those people at impact, there are four people who survived from above impact. One being Stanley, worked at Fuji Bank on the 81st floor, and three people from Eurobrokers, myself, Ron Francesco, and another co-worker, Richie Fern. Brian Clark worked in the South Tower of the World Trade Center, the second tower that was hit on 9-11. His office was at the top of the impact zone. Brian worked on the 84th floor, and the plane struck floors 77 through 85. Only 18 people who worked inside or above the impact zone survived that day, including Brian, and also a man he mentioned named Stanley, Stanley Pramnath, whose life he saved and who would become a lifelong friend. They were two of the last 25 people to leave the building, escaping just minutes before the tower collapsed. Today, Brian brings us his first-hand account of the day that would forever change his life. But first, a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to Brian Clark with his story. Our company, Eurobrokers, started in Toronto in 1970. I didn't join for a couple of years, end of 72. And by the time uh, we got to all the way up to 13 employees, it was time to expand the business and we decided to move lock, stock and barrel to New York City. So Eurobrokers relocated uh, its headquarters in the World Trade Center in July of 74. And in the 93 bombing, we ended up relocating to the 84th floor of the South Tower. And that's where we were when 9-11 rolled around. I commuted each day about an hour and 10 minutes from bedroom to desk. And uh, on that morning, I arrived just as I always did at about 7.15 in the morning, uh, paraded around the the floor. Our CEO and our uh, chief operating officer were both in London, England, coincidentally, that uh, particular day. I should also state that we got our, our employee roster was up to about 250 people in New York City, occupying the entire 84th floor. And one of my responsibilities at the time this was happening was starting an office in uh, Shanghai. But I was in New York at this particular time, that particular day, and paraded around the floor. Uh, everything seemed normal while the, the, the big bosses were away. 
I got back to my office, my personal office, which was on the southwest corner of the South Tower. It's actually on the west wall near the south corner. And I was typing away at my keyboard with my back to the windows, uh, my back, the west windows, when at 8.46 there was a loud double boom. And the lights above me buzzed. Um, I didn't know what it was, but as I sort of stood up and looked at these buzzing lights above me, I, my peripheral vision caught something behind me. I spun around and uh, right there, 84 floors in the air were swirling flames. It was very strange. It only lasted two or three seconds. It dissipated and out in the airspace, 84 floors in the air were floating papers, singed papers of all sorts. I jumped up um, in the overhead credenza. I had a flashlight and a whistle that the World Trade Center had provided to fire safety teams and I had volunteered as one of the executives to do that. We had a team of about eight of us that were on our fire safety team. I grabbed my flashlight and went out of my office which and I sort of had control of the southwest quadrant of our floor and said you know come on everybody let's go to the center hallway and uh, wait for further instructions. That's what we were instructed to do. Here we were prepared for that sort of evacuation me thinking that maybe a welder on the 86th floor, a couple of floors above us, had hit a gas line and the flames had spilled out the side of the building and that's what I saw. I had no idea that the North Tower had been hit at this point. So I went to the North Windows with a lot of our other brokers um, because you know, some of them had seen something happen next door, that sort of, sort of thing. So I wandered up there, and as I approached the window, somebody said, oh, people are jumping. And I go, oh, this is, this is absurd. What do you mean? And I would guess this is now uh, maybe five to nine, uh, less than 10 minutes after that first boom, boom. And we had about, I guess, oh, there must have been 50 brokers pushing against the windows, if you like, maybe three people deep in that area. And then when I heard people were jumping, I didn't want to go to those windows and see that. Um, and one girl, Susan Polio, a co-worker of mine, moved away from the windows very quickly because she saw somebody jump. And she came back to me, Brian, Brian, she said, people are dying. I said, Susan, I know, let's, let's, you know, get you a little more composed. And I walked her off the trading floor into the center hallway and walked her back to the ladies' room and I continued on to my office. And I called my wife, this would be maybe nine o'clock, uh, called my wife in Northern New Jersey to tell her that something had happened next door, but we were okay. Um, and I had seen this ring of fire around the 93rd floor, so I, I knew that it was next door, but I knew we were okay, and I told my wife that. You know, we're okay, just, you know, but turn on the television if you want to see what's going on next door, but we're, we're okay. I called my father in Toronto, told him the same thing, and uh, he, you know, put down the phone, and when I put down the phone at 9.02, I suppose it was, the strobe lights flashed, the, the siren gave a little sort of whoop whoop, or the PA system gave a little whoop whoop, and a very familiar voice came over the PA system. It was the fellow who coordinated our our fire evacuation uh, drills every six months, and he said, "Your attention, ladies and gentlemen. Building two is secure, meaning the South Tower. Building two is secure. There's no need to evacuate Building two. If you are in the midst of evacuation, you may use the re-entry doors." and the elevators to return to your offices. Repeat, building two is secure. 
well, you know, this sort of the pressure's off was the feeling I had. I went out of my office and uh, walked to our west side trading floor. It was pretty empty there. And I came across a co-worker of mine, Bobby Call. And I said, Bobby, what have you heard? You know, what, what, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, I was down a few floors in the stairwell and I heard the announcement and I came back out and then boom, boom, this double explosion again while he was in the midst of explaining that to me. He and I immediately went into middle linebacker stances, you know, steadying ourselves almost eyeball to eyeball. And in that split second, that boom, boom, electricity went off, everything rained down out of the ceiling. The the, the lights, the air conditioning ducts, um, the whole ceiling grid, of course, speakers, anything that was up there, the room was immediately filled with construction dust. No flames, no black smoke, but just this gritty, chalky, you know, you wanted to spit it out. Um, and the air was just filled with dirt and dust. I reached in my pocket, pulled out the flashlight and kind of shone it around. And I will tell you that for 10 seconds, I was terrified because for the first five seconds after that explosion, it, whether this happened or not, I don't know. I mean, it sounds extraordinary when I describe it, but my sensation was that the building was moving to the west six to eight feet, this horrible feeling, and I got in a slight panic mode. You know, the building's falling over, and your mind does very strange things in that moment, and I, I actually was looking for something to grab onto, to hold onto, to brace myself while the building fell over, which is crazy, but that's just confessing that's how I felt at that moment. And then for five seconds, the building swayed to the east. I don't mean it went back and forth. I meant from its six to eight feet, if that really happened, movement to the west, it just moved back to vertical. And there was this sort of noticeable little hop as perhaps all the steel went back into square. I don't know. But that's when I, you know, the flashlight, I shone it around the room and I saw the destruction that had happened in that split second. There was walls torn at jagged angles. Um, it was like just, it was as if you gave a, a construction crew a week to destroy the place. You know, here's sledgehammers and crowbars, go wreck this place. And it all happened, as I say, in that second. Um, I led a group of people, probably six to eight people, out through into the center hallway and when I say center hallway there were actually two crossed hallways a north south and an east west so as we move from west to the center core um, there was no stairway no escape scare stairway fire escape in that section of the hallway the stairs located to my right when I got to that intersection to my right was stairway C ahead of me stairway B and to my left stairway A and I had this intention to move to the, my right, to stairway C. But as I approached that intersection, something strange happened to me. It was this sort of odd push on my right shoulder. There was nobody there, but there's this sensation that I had to go to the left. So I just went with it. And there was stairway A as I went around the corner on my left. And then again to my left, I entered the stairwell and down we went, me with my flashlight leading this group as, a, of, as I say, six to eight people. Between each floor, it's a this way and a that way, a this way and a that way. As I got just about to the 81st floor landing and I got onto it and I made the turn to, you know, continue on down to the 80th floor, I was stopped on the 81st floor landing by a woman coming up the stairs and she just blocked my way. But, you know, no, no, you can't go down and wouldn't let me past her. 
She was coming up the stairs with a, a co-worker of hers, I assume he was a co-worker, a frail by comparison gentleman, because she was quite a large lady. And she said, no, no, you can't go down. We've got to go higher. We've got to get better air up above. And now in behind me, you know, bump, 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 come the rest of my group that started down the stairway with me. And the debate began, you know, well, up or down, what do we do? You know, yeah, I think we should, you know, people were conflicting opinions and so on. And I sort of shone my flashlight in the face of whoever was talking. And in the midst of that, well, maybe 20 seconds into that debate, I was distracted and I dropped out of the conversation, if you like, and I heard this banging noise inside the 81st floor and this muffled cry for help, sort of a, help, help, I'm buried, is anyone there? I can't breathe. And I instinctively grabbed the shoulder of the gentleman beside me, a co-worker of mine, Ron DeFrancesco, and I said, come on, Ron, we got to get this guy. And I'm pretty sure Ron didn't really know what I was talking about, but he dutifully came with me. The door was locked, the, the door to the 81st floor was locked, but it, the frame had blown off the wall and we were able to push the drywall back and I sort of squeezed sideways through that gap. And as I did that, I had a clear view, a direct view, if you like, of the 81st floor landing. And all my coworkers were turning around and starting to go up the stairs. And they all went up and they all died that day included Bobby Call, who, you know, he and I were face-to-face -face when the plane hit us, Kevin York, co-worker, and Bobby and Kevin were on both elbows of the heavyset woman telling her, we'll help you, lady, you know, we're, we're in this together, don't worry, we're with you, that sort of thing. So here were these good guys doing good deed at this time, not knowing what, what was about to happen, but there they were doing, as I say, working with the information they had, they were doing, they were reacting to the, what was in front of them at the time. David Vera was also in that group of people. David Vera was on the fire safety team with me and he carried a walkie-talkie. He was one of our technicians, so he was leading the group up the stairs. As I went in on the 81st floor with Ron beside me, thick black smoke sort of roiling in the air there. Again, the lights out, um, no flames seemed to be less construction dust than we experienced on the 84th floor but nonetheless it was in turmoil it was an absolute mess stepping over air conditioning ducts and so on as this stranger's voice directed us left or right or this way that way um, and halfway there and i'm guessing that the stranger's voice was about 20 yards away from the doorway halfway there ron was completely overcome with the smoke and I, I only can describe this as sort of miraculous. It was a very strange event, and I, I, I'm taking 30, 40 seconds to describe it, almost like an out-of-body experience. I paused and saw that around me was a bubble of fresh air. I was breathing absolutely normally, and yet three feet beside me, Ron DeFrancesco, completely overcome with smoke. He's coughing and sputtering. He turned around, left, and went back to the stairs. And indeed, when he got back to the stairs, he went up. He tells his story that he got to, and I'm, I'm recollecting some numbers here, I hope I'm correct. He got up to about the 91st floor when he caught up to everybody. And people were lying down on the floor or on the stairwell, thinking that they would have cleaner air. Um, and he said they, people were falling asleep which is his way of saying, I think they were, you know, going unconscious. He said, um, I heard, I, Ron, heard a voice in my head, not my own voice. And it was simply, get up. 
So he said, I got up. I knew I then, at that point, that I had to see my wife and family. And he said, I fought my way back to the stairs and went down, down, down. I'm assuming he went through the slot that Stanley and I had now created. But he, when he got to the bottom of that escalator in the lower lobby, the woman ex instructed him to go to the northeast corner, which he did. As he got to that corner, he heard a very loud explosion, and it was a fireball coming down the hall at him. And it was as the south tower was collapsing, so he was, if anybody, he's one of the last people out of the tower sort of thing. It blew him across Church Street, and he woke up in Beekman Downtown Hospital uh, Two days later, his wife didn't even recognize him when he, she went into the hospital. Um, finishing Ron's story, he, he had cracked vertebrae, badly burned, but he survived and he, you know, he was healed and repaired. And just about six months later, Ron went back to work and was greeted with a standing ovation. Now let's get back to Brian, who after leaving Ron at the staircase, started to follow that voice, crying for help. Got my wits about me, moved ahead to this stranger's voice as I got closer and closer to him. He's saying, can you see my hand? Can you see my hand? And down near the floor, my flashlight caught this arm waving in the darkness, and I moved the light up the arm and hidden behind a hole in the wall, I went into this person's, this stranger's eyeballs, and he said to me at that moment, Hallelujah, I've been saved. One thing I've got to know, do you know Jesus Christ? Well, I didn't really want to get into a religious, you know, theological discussion at that time. And I, I stuttered rather Peter-like to him. Uh, uh, I go to church every Sunday. That was the only response I could come out to that question. I said, come on, you know, we got work to do here. And, and he pulled his arm back in behind the wall and I started removing debris this side of the wall. and. We realized, the two of us, as we started to talk, that there was an immovable wall between us. So I went to my side and I dragged a desk over, tipped it up on its end, and climbed up on top of the desk because the fault ceiling had all fallen away. And the walls are maybe nine feet tall, that sort of thing. And the drop ceiling comes down to make you think it's an enclosed room when it's really not. So you're, I was up in the plenum and looking over this nine foot wall now, down into this pit where this stranger was, and I said, the only way out of there is for you to come up, you know, jump up, I'll catch you. Well, he jumped once, I missed him. I said, you must do this if you want to, you know, go home, that sort of thing. So he jumped again and I somehow got under his armpit and I heaved him up over the wall and, I, you know, adrenaline working, I guess. I don't have great upper body strength, but nonetheless, I pulled him up over this wall and then the desk tipped back and we fell back onto a pile of debris. And this stranger gave me this great big kiss on the cheek and I kind of rolled away and dusted myself off and stuck out my hand. I said, I'm Brian Clark. He said, I'm Stanley. We'll be brothers for life. I said, well, I don't have any, any siblings. Okay, I'll be your brother. And I noticed at that time that I had a puncture wound on my right palm. He had a puncture wound on one of his palms. I actually schmushed, as they say, schmushed our hands together. And I said, in fact, we'll be blood brothers for life. Now, nobody would confuse Stanley and I to be brothers. Stanley is, you know, an Asian Indian, born and raised in uh, Guyana in South America. Uh, we do not look like brothers, but we are now blood brothers. More with Brian Clark on his and Stanley's harrowing escapes after these messages from our sponsors. 
Let's return to Brian. Just as he experienced a miraculous escape from above the plane's impact zone, Stanley did too. Yes, Brian saved him, but Stanley shouldn't have survived at all. When the plane hit the North Tower, it was in somehow in his peripheral vision as well, and he and a group of his co-workers actually thought, it's best to evacuate, let's go home. So they went from the 81st floor where they were, took the local elevator to 78, waited for an express elevator, rode it down to the ground floor, and as they were trying to exit the elevator and go through the turnstiles, the security card said, whoa, whoa, where are you going? Your building's secure, there's no need. You're just getting in the way of everybody coming out of the North Tower. And peer pressure kind of put them all back on the elevator and up they went, up to uh, 80, 78, and then across and up to, to 81. As Stanley went into his part of the, the 81st floor, which was right against the south wall, his phone was ringing. He picked it up and it was a woman in his Chicago office, Fuji Bank, Chicago. Oh, she said, I hope nobody was gonna pick up this phone. You gotta get out of there, you gotta evacuate. No, 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 our building's fine. He's saying, you know, what the security guard had told him. He said, our building's fine. No, no, you don't understand, a plane is hit and blah, blah, blah. And as he's talking to her and he's looking out the south windows over New York Harbor, across the statue or above the Statue of Liberty comes plane number two. And she's telling him what this is all about, and it's, it's not making sense to him exactly, but it banks, and here it comes, heading straight for him. And now he's starting to compute what she's saying, and as it got closer and closer and wider and wider in his vision, he dove under his desk. Lord, I'm in your hands. His Bible was open on his desk. He's a deeply religious gentleman, and boom, boom. You know, he got the, you know, the boom impact and boom the explosion inside the building and parts of that right wing went right through his floor. And when he came out from underneath his desk, he says his desk was the only thing standing. Everything else was flattened. And you know, everything's hanging from the ceiling and sparking and, and so on. And he just was temporarily deaf and then started swimming through the debris toward the northwest corner, which is where I finally found him. I said, now come on, you know, come on, we, we gotta go home. And you know, put my arm around him. We kind of made our way th with my flashlight through the darkness back to the stairway. And then I guess that was the fateful step. I uh, shone the light down the stairs and I didn't see any flames. I just wanted to see what was down there. I remembered what the woman had said, but we started down and uh, we passed so, uh, sort of a cracked wall on the, about the 78th floor, which was the upper of the two sky lobbies. And, and the, the wall was cracked and the flames were kind of flickering through those cracks, but no roaring inferno or anything that, that I thought we were going to enter. Um, we removed a lot of debris. It was mainly drywall that had caved in on the stairwell. Um, the fire escape stairways in the World Trade Center weren't poured concrete, they weren't cinder block, they were strictly three layers of fireproof drywall, you know, layered on each other. So a lot of that had blown in over the stairs, so we were removing that for many floors. There was just the two of us there doing this. There was water flowing underfoot, maybe an inch or two of water from broken pipes or whatever. And by the time we got to, I'm guessing, the 74th floor, we suddenly broke into normal conditions. The lights were now on, which weren't on up above. The water continued on down for a few floors, but I don't remember when we sort of lost track of the water being there, or the feeling that the water was underneath. And this feeling absolutely washed over me. 
Brian, you're you're going to be fine. You know, things are okay. Just you know, keep going. You're good. It wasn't my voice, but it wasn't a voice from God or anything like that. It was just more of this feeling that I was going to be okay. We continued on down, and on the 68th floor, we came across the only person we would see in the stairway, other than that heavyset woman and her friend up above. And he was coming up the stairs. We, we, in our entire descent, we didn't overtake anybody. Nobody overtook us. But on the 68th floor, coming up the stairs, was a co-worker of mine, Jose Marrero. Jose was on our fire safety team, carrying a walkie-talkie. And I said, Jose, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where are you going? He said, I can hear Dave Vera up above. He's helping people. I'm going up to help him. I said, well, Dave's a big boy. He can, he can, he'll get himself out. He said, he said, no, no, I'll be okay. And he sort of passed us by and up he went. And Jose, of course, died that day. So he's my, one of my heroes in the, in the story that I tell. Stanley and I continued on down. We got to the 44th floor and I knew that was the lower of the two sky lobbies. We decided to go in at the center of the floor. There's nobody there except in the center of the floor was a security guard in his gray flannels and his blue blazer. And he said, uh, do you have telephones when, when he saw us? I said, no, we don't have phones. He said, well, I'll stay with this fellow. And he sort of backed up and behind his security desk was a badly injured male with head wounds and back wounds. How he got those injuries, I don't know. How he got to the 44th floor, I don't know. But he said, well, I'll look after him, but you must promise me when you get to a telephone, tell them about the 44th floor. You need a medic and a stretcher. We said, okay, no problem, we'll do it. Back to the stairs we went, down, down, down. I thought, well, maybe we could get to some telephones in the 31st floor. Oppenheimer space was completely evacuated. The only people on the floor was Stanley and I. We got into their conference room, picked up the conference room telephone and got dial tone, uh, which is odd because the security guard on 44 had no dial tone, but we tried and there it was. I called my wife at home, it's now 9.33, and I said, um, you know, I'm on the 31st floor, I've got a great story to tell you, and you know, I just want you to know we're okay. She said, oh, I'm, you know, happiness, and I said, uh, now I've got to make another phone call. Um, so I called 911, the emergency number, to tell them about the man on the 44th floor. And an odd thing happened in that bit because when I got through to 911, which, and it was quick, the first person I talked to said, oh, you know, after I told them what was going on on the 44th floor, she said, oh, let me connect you to so-and-so. Click, and I'm on the hold. So, so I'm sitting there waiting for somebody else to come on the phone on the, 40, on the 31st floor. And another person came on, uh, yes, what's your uh, situation? And I told them, and they said, oh, well, I'll put you through to, and I think she said EMT, I don't know. Click, I'm on hold again. So wait, wait, wait. Tell the third person, I'm only gonna tell you this once and then I'm hanging up the phone. I wanna get out of this building, but blah, 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 and told them about the person on the 44th floor and I put the phone down. Stanley called his uh, wife at work, didn't connect with her because she had left for their home hearing the news, and um, we went back to, the, back to the stairway. I'll interrupt my story a little bit to tell you what happened at home. When I connected with my wife, she put down the phone and turned to the group of people who had now collected in our home half an hour after the plane hit our building, Neighbors, some people from our church, and three of my four children had come here to be with their mother, sort of thing, or be with Diane. 
and um, she turned around and told the room, Brian's on the 31st floor, he's okay, he's got a great story to tell us apparently, and he'll be out of the building in two hours. Now I never said that, but in 1993, from the 31st floor, it had taken two hours to get out of the building because everybody immediately went to the stairs and for two hours from the 31st floor, it was left step, right step, left step, right? And with your hand on the shoulder of the person ahead of you, stairways were absolutely jammed. So it took two hours to get out. So I understood why she said it, but I didn't tell her that, that I'd be out, because there was nobody in the stairway with Stanley and I. So down, down, down we went. We got to the plaza level, which is the upper of the two lobbies at the, at the base of the building. And we stared out into the center courtyard where there was a fountain and the sphere and flowers and normally a very attractive park-like setting. Granted, it's concrete, not grass, but nonetheless, it was a very people place, bright colors, tourists coming and going, vendors with their carts and so on. And it was, you know, a sunny day. It would have been a great tourist sort of day but now when we looked out it was ashen gray it looked like an abandoned archaeological site um, my mind blocked any carnage that might have been there I don't remember seeing any bodies or anything that haunts me to this day never never saw it never retained it as a memory we stared at it for 30 seconds through some cracked windows um, and then went back to the escalator behind us uh, power off down to the ground floor or the lower part of the lobby, the two-story two lobby. And at the bottom of that escalator was a female, either policewoman, fire department, or security guard. I just remember her as a female telling us that we could not enter DC Street to the south at that point. We had to go through the shopping area, um, the underground shopping area, and exit in the southeast corner. Okay, so, you know, we knew where that was, through the, through the revolving doors and walked past a lot of firemen who were pulling on gear, but nobody in a panic mode at all, nobody running, panicking, nothing like that. They were just pulling on gear and the two of us walked as civilians through this group of firemen to the southeast corner. And when we were about to exit that door, which is below the, the uh, New York Commodity Exchange at the time, a fireman at the door said, whoa, whoa, wait, guys, if you go, if you exit these doors, you got to go for it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's debris falling from above. I said, well, should I look up? He said, no, no, just go for it. I couldn't do that. So I slowly opened the door and, you know, glanced up and didn't see anything coming. And I said, I don't see anything, Stanley. Are you ready? He says, yeah. I said, all right, let's go. And we ran for it directly south on uh, Washington Street, I believe it is jumping over firemen's equipment and or you know whatever hoses whatever that they had distributed there and other debris that I didn't really recognize and we ran south for a block and a half and then I finally ran out of gas outside the front of a delicatessen um, and I said to the deli owner uh, you know who was in his doorway looking up at, at the, the, the fires going on in the towers I said, do you have any water? He said, we've just come down 80 some odd floors. He said, yeah, sure. And he went in and he came back with a couple of bottles of water, handed the one to each of us. And he said, wait, wait right here. And he went back in there and he came back with one of those breakfast platters, like a round platter with 
sweet rolls and melons and cellophane. And he said, he gave it to us almost, you know, pleadingly, like, take it. He said, nobody's coming for this today. I said, okay. So I started walking down the street carrying this breakfast platter. Um, a block later, we got over to Church Street, which is on the west side of Trinity, of, uh, yeah, Trinity Church, but well down below the cemetery, because there's a you know maybe a 12-foot wall on the south side and and the uh, west side of Trinity Church Cemetery, and um, we came upon two priests from Trinity Church, and when Stanley sort of the the four of us got together or sort of almost bumped into each other, Stanley broke down. He said, "This man saved my life." And the towers are still standing. So it's all, whether it's a premonition or whatever, I mean, I, I'm not thinking of death yet. I just just am not. He said, this man saved my life. I said, well, Stanley, maybe you saved my life by calling me in on the 81st floor. And one of the priests said, let's have a prayer. So the four of us are having a prayer in the middle of Church Street. No traffic at all. They blocked all the traffic. And then the other priest, when the prayer was finished, said, Trinity Church is open, you know, if you'd like to go in there. And Stanley and I kind of, without saying anything, sort of eyeballed each other and, okay, we'll do that. So we went to the, around the corner and to Rector Street. Now, Rector Street slopes up on the south side of the cemetery. And as you climb up Rector Street toward Broadway, relative to the cemetery, you get higher and higher and the cemetery gets lower and lower. And when we got as far as um, Alexander Hamilton's gravesite, Stanley turned more than 90 degrees around and looked back at the South Tower. And from that angle, the South Tower, the one we just came out of, blocks the view of the North Tower. So all we could see is the South Tower above Trinity Church, if you like. And he said, you know, I think that tower could come down. And I said, there's no way, that's a steel structure. That's just carpets and furniture and draperies burning. And it was like we were invited to watch. As I sort of finished that sentence, Way up at the top, we saw a little sort of a wiggle, and then from the top down, boom, 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 the floors pancaking one upon the other, all the way down, this sort of whoosh sound. And it took eight to 10 seconds for the whole tower to dissolve. Now we could not see the bottom, I'm guessing, quarter of the tower. Trinity Church blocked our view of that. But Trinity Church also acted as a bit of a savior in that the white wave of guck that came out of that implosion slammed into Trinity Church like a, a, a wave on the sea hitting a seawall and the energy just exploded it upward above Trinity Church and there was Stanley and I in this huge bubble of fresh air you know protected once again we ran up to Broadway waiting for this wave to crash down upon us ran up to Broadway and ran down Broadway. We only got as far as 42 Broadway as the wave came down and rolled behind us as it got up to our backsides. We went in at random, 42 Broadway, a tiny building I'd never been in before, a tiny lobby that, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 feet by 20 feet. It was a small lobby. And your mind does strange things when you're under pressure. As I went through the revolving doors there to get into that lobby, I'm still carrying the breakfast platter. You know, didn't want to litter on Broadway. So we were provided for with a bunch of other strangers. We tore it open. We had sweet rolls and melons and everybody was provided for as the room got very dark, as the white wave sort of blocked any sunlight coming in. Stanley and I talked for a 
gosh, it was now 10 o'clock when this happened. And we talked for 45 minutes. It got dark again at 10.30. We didn't know that was the North Tower collapsing. Um, and another wave of the, the white gut making it dark inside. Um, Stanley gave me his personal business card, not his business card. He and his wife operated a small business from their home. So I had his home address, his wife's name and his home phone number on it. I tucked it in my shirt pocket. And at 10.45, we went out the back door of that building and it's behind the New York Stock Exchange and put our, got our way on to Broadway, uh, Broad Street rather. And as we walked down Broad Street, it was like a snowy day. There was, you know, a half an inch of snow on the ground and uh, uh, on parking meters and mailboxes and any cars that happened to be stopped there that weren't moving. And strangely, Stanley suddenly was gone. And I didn't know how that happened, where he had gone. I learned later that he had commandeered a fellow in a pickup truck and said, you drive me to Brooklyn, that sort of thing. But that was a story that came to me later. But at that time, he had just disappeared and there wasn't really a crowd there. And almost like Tom Hanks in that movie, Castaway, I was, Stanley, Stanley, you know, Tom Hanks is yelling, Wilson, Wilson, I'm looking for Stanley, he's gone. Very strange. And then I said, well, that, maybe he was my guardian angel. I reached in my pocket, hoping that I'd find a business card. And yes, I knew Stanley was real because I had his, his business card, his home business card. Um, and I walked over to the East River um, and started walking north on the FDR, thinking, how am I going to get off this island? And I heard a bullhorn. Next ferry is for Jersey City. Well, that's very strange. They don't have ferries on the East River that go to go to Jersey City, but they had directed all the ferries that normally go to the World Financial Center on the Hudson around Battery Park and up the East River. And on Pier 11, I ran down that pier, a place I'd never been before. And I said, I heard, you know, uh, Jersey City. Yeah, that ferry. I jumped on the ferry and they closed the doors behind me. It pulled away from the dock, went south on the East River, around Battery Park and chugging sort of in a northwesterly direction toward Jersey City. Still in a fog, you know, couldn't really see much on the island. But as we got parallel to the World Trade Center site, the skies cleared because the wind had been blowing from north to south that day. And all the noise on that ferry boat that was yakety yak, you know, yip, 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 you know, people telling their stories and everything. And I think most people were traveling with co-workers. As, as we got there and realized there were no towers at all, the ferry boat went dead silent. Everybody was awestruck at this hole in the sky. It was just inconceivable that two towers were down. Fortunately for me, my mind was still protecting me in that I'm thinking objectively, not subjectively. I'm looking at that space thinking, that's amazing, how could that happen? Oh, that's terrible. But I wasn't thinking, oh my gosh, people are dead. You know, the, the, the terror, the horror wasn't part of my thinking at the time. I was confused, but, but awestruck by the enormity of what had happened, but not really realizing the depth, the emotion that was involved in any of that. We chugged over to the Jersey City ferry terminal and being the last one on the ferry, I was the first one off. I ran down the pier into the ticket office there and I said to the lady, can I use your phone? And she said, sure, slid it across the desk. I picked it up. 
called home. It's now, I've got to get my timing right here. It was now 11.15. So it was an hour and 15 minutes after Brian died, according to everybody in my house. And I dialed through and oddly, I got straight through. I should have statistically got a, a busy signal because our phone was just ringing off the hook for days, including at that time, although I didn't know it. And I was oblivious to any pain that anybody was going on that was happening in our home. My wife happened to pick up the phone. She had been out pacing with a girlfriend out in the backyard and had come in for a glass of water and passed the phone at the moment it rang. So of the 40 people in our house, she was the one closest to it, picked it up. And she said later at the time, she said, I knew by the crackle on the phone that it was you. Now, our phone doesn't crackle, but... I said, and again, oblivious to anything that they were going through, I said, hi, honey, it's me. And she fainted. I didn't really talk to her. A friend picked it up, and this man's voice said, who's this? And I said, well, who's this? I'm thinking, you know, what's a man doing in my house? I mean, I was clueless. So she said, it's Dave. I said, oh, hi, Dave. He said, where are you? I said, Jersey City. Oh, thank God. He said, we'll come and get you. I said, Dave, they're not letting traffic in here. I'm going to walk up to Hoboken. I'll be fine. I'll be home when I can. So he said, oh, thank you. No, hung up. And with hundreds of other people, I walked up to Hoboken. As I walked into the Hoboken train station at five minutes to noon, the public address system said the 1130 mainline train to Bergen County that has been delayed will be departing in five minutes. So I always sort of laughed there. Well, they actually held a train for me that day. I got on that train and it was a milk run. It wasn't an express like I was used to. They were catering to everybody who needed a ride. And, and in effect, it really wasn't my main train line. I usually rode the Bergen County line. This got me eventually to where I wanted to be, but it took longer. Um, I, I ended up getting home at 1.15. As I pulled in the driveway with horn blaring, the house emptied, big love fest on the front lawn. And I have been telling my story ever since. Um, it's just sort of amazing how it all worked out. I'm, I realize I'm a lucky person, A, to be alive, but also to survive without any survivor guilt. I am not, I, I, I sleep well. My head hit the pillow that night at about 11 o'clock. I fell asleep. The phone rang at one o'clock. It was Stanley who'd gotten home from the hospital. I'd left a message for him at four in the afternoon, letting him know I was home safely and how he could get in touch with me. He went to the hospital to get cleaned up, I guess, and, and called me at one in the morning on September the 12th. <laughs> I was sound asleep. So that was the first time we connected after 9-11. Um, and we've seen each other many times since. Brian mentioned not having survivor's guilt. This is extremely unusual. You've heard in several of our stories that many people affected by 9-11 experience survivor's guilt, including me. To this day, I still wonder why my friends died and I didn't. It's truly an awful thing to wrap your head around and Brian's been fortunate to not suffer with that. Maybe it was just the way he was programmed or maybe according to Brian, it's because he doesn't bother trying to explain the unexplainable. His faith also might be giving him comfort. The number of miraculous moments on that day is just remarkable. Here's Brian making sense of all those moments. When the, the, we got hit by the, build, uh, the plane and it swayed this way and then back to vertical, 
When it stopped, a feeling washed over me, Brian, you're going to be fine. Almost like a voice, but not a voice. It was just this strong feeling, you'll be fine. And then what, 20 seconds later, the push on the right arm. And then a few minutes later, this bubble of fresh air around me in the midst of all that smoke. And I I sort of, as I said, I had this sort of almost out of body experience. It takes 20 seconds to explain, but it sort of gets processed in a split second. I sort of looked at myself with this bubble while Ron is sputtering and and thought, well, this is strange. You know, how can this be? And I've used the word miraculous. That's what it felt like at the time. And then later, I get through on the phone. The, the, The ferry's there waiting for me. The train is waiting for me. All these things happened that I didn't plan on, but worked out pretty well. Um, You will recall that um, I passed, uh, coming up the stairs, Jose Marrero on the 68th floor and questioned, what what are you doing, Jose, where are you going? And he said, I'm going up to help people. One week later, it was early on the Tuesday morning and 9-11 was a Tuesday. I was in quite a deep dream And my dream was rather strange in that I was, my dream, (laughs) I was lying on my back in my bed, looking at the foot of my bed. Now I only sleep on my right side or my left side. I, for respiratory reasons, I don't sleep on my front or my back. But in my dream, which is strange for me, I was dreaming that I was in my bed looking at the foot of the bed. And to the foot of my bed came Jose Marrero, wearing a white, brilliant white blousy shirt. I could only see him from the hips up. Whether it was a gown or not, I don't know. But he had this radiant smile. He was a happy man, Jose, but 32 years old at the time. And he had this big smile and he didn't say anything, but with this big smile, he kind of nodded down to me. And I got accusatory. I, in my dream, I pointed my finger at him and I said, Jose, you're alive. How did you do that? That's amazing. I said, you fooled everybody. And he didn't say a word. Again, just this smile and he leaned forward and the message he sent me without him verbalizing, it was just something I absorbed. It was a very casual, you'll figure it out. And I shook my head, you know, get the cobwebs out of my eye and he's gone. But there I was in that position that I'd been in in my dream on my back and my head was up off the pillow. And it was so seamless that I sat up in bed and looked around the room and and thought to myself, well, where did he go? How did he do that? You know, he's done it again. You know, that kind of a sensation. And then right beside me, beep, 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 my alarm went off. And that's when I really woke up and realized that Jose was this visitation. But I also immediately got this feeling, Jose's fine. All my coworkers are fine. Everybody's fine. You know, you and I will be fine with the fullness of time. It was just such a comforting feeling that that washed over me. And I got on with the rest of my life from that moment on. And what it left me with is nothing has changed in what I believe. I still believe what I believed before, but I now have no doubts. You know, there was prior to that moment, there was this thought that, well, okay, yeah, that's what I believe, but, you know, can this be true? Well, now I'm very comfortable in saying, yeah, it's all true. We're going to be fine. 
big thank you to Brian for telling his story. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us for today's episode. We've had a lot of great feedback from you guys, and we just want to read some of the reviews. One reviewer said, I'm not a podcast fan, but I stumbled upon this podcast from an email I received. These stories are heartbreaking and uplifting. I was hooked after the first story I listened to. These are just 20 to 30 minutes long that I can listen to during my short 25-minute work commute. I highly recommend this podcast for anyone, whether you remember 9-11 or not. These stories are important so that we never forget what happened on that day. Another listener wrote, Never written a podcast review in my life, but this one caught me off guard. If you remember 9-11, then listen and your heart will be moved. And if you're anything like me, there are so many emotions that surface as these stories are so inspiring, uplifting, and heartbreaking. If you're not old enough to recall, like my children, then listen, learn, and reflect. These stories are treasures. Well done. Thank you so much for the kind words and support. We're so moved to know that you folks will never forget. I also want to say thank you to all those who have served our great country in one way or another. Stay safe out there. And now, before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me. But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today. As Nils so powerfully says, I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.